Well, as I was preparing for this study, I, I like to kind of get started on kind of Sunday night, kind of Monday morning, and I, I'm kind of starting to work through my intro. What, well, what do you want to say? And I knew we were approaching the plagues. I knew we were approaching these moments where God starts pouring out his signs and wonders upon Egypt. And he's starting to demonstrate. We talked about that last week. He really does it for three reasons. It's not God just flexing his muscles aimlessly. It's purposeful, right? And we talked about those. We saw those in chapter 7. That he's going to deliver his people. He's going to redeem his people, the children of Israel, the Hebrew people, out of bondage in Egypt. That's number one. But, he's, but two, remember, he's going to bring judgment upon the Egyptians. He's going to judge them. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to judge them. He's going to judge their idols, their gods. And that's what we're going to start to see. But then number three, we talked about it as he's making himself known to all of Egypt. All the world is going to see the awesome power of God. And that's really when we start to see these plagues, we're talking about awe demonstrated. This is what God is showing us in his sufficient power, his awesome power. But as I was kind of preparing this, I was thinking, I need to set the stage. Remember, that's what I was thinking. Kind of Monday, Tuesday, I'm thinking. And so I'm reading articles. I'm trying to find something that could set the stage of what it was like in Egypt during this time, like when the Nile River gets struck and is turned into blood. And so I'm reading some old articles about a fuel shortage or a fuel crisis. In the last 50 years, we've had a few of those. Fuel crisis, fuel shortage, and chaos that ensues, and long lines, and price gouging, and reserves kind of running low. Is any of that sounding familiar? I, I was thinking I needed to do that to try and set the stage for you, and it turns out I didn't need to do any of that, did I? Right? We can just look around. We can go to Costco or our favorite grocery store, anyone. We're, we're seeing this type of stuff happening right here in real time in our lives. Things like this right around us. And it sounds all too familiar, but, but church, I do not find it a coincidence that we're in the book of Exodus talking about the awe of God and his power demonstrated when we're living at a time where there is a global crisis. This coronavirus is affecting the entire planet. And it's amazing how God is getting our attention. At least that's what I hope. I hope for us as a church, God is getting our attention. I hope for, for the church as a whole, all Christians, I hope God is getting their attention. And especially for those people who don't know the Lord God, don't know like Pharaoh doesn't know, I hope it's getting their attention. And I hope it's drawing them to a place where we can, we can express and share the hope that we have. But I want us to just think about some of this. Is God, is God communicating something through this? Listen, I think so. And we as the church want to see that and understand that as we look at his word and start to see that, that Jesus has actually warned us about these same things before they happen. As we look to the word like our compass, like a lamp unto our feet, I want us to see a couple things. Before we get to Exodus, you can either pull out your study guides and look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 8, or we'll have this, the verses on the screen, or, or, or you can flip in your Bibles yourself. But this is the Gospel of Matthew. This is what Jesus told his disciples, us, beforehand, and in this context. So Matthew 24, verses 1 through 8, it says this, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying this. Listen to this. They say, Tell us, when will these things be? That's the question. When are these things going to happen? 
And then two, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Listen, there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now we're looking at what's called the Olivet Discourse. And and some of you were there. We studied Matthew chapter 24. We studied the Gospel of Matthew together. We studied Daniel. We studied Revelation together. All those teachings are on the website. And you might have some time in the coming weeks to listen to some of those. Catch up on this. But check this out. Jesus is departing Jerusalem, leaving the temple area with his disciples. And they're wowing Herod's renovation of the temple grounds. And they're saying, Jesus, look at how magnificent these buildings are. And it's like they're pulling Jesus aside, saying, are you as impressed as we are? Look at these, Jesus, look at these. And that's when Jesus says, assuredly I say to you, not one of these stones is going to be left standing upon another. They're not going to be stacked. Those walls that you see, they're all going to come down. And he's speaking of AD 70, when you're going to see that the Romans are going to come and level Jerusalem, and they're going to destroy that temple. And so he's telling them right now, he says, don't be impressed with that type of stuff, but this piques their interest. And they're going to say, well, when, Jesus, when is this going to happen? And then they say, what will be the sign of your coming? Think about that question. Jesus, what are things going to be like as the day of your return nears? What is it going to be like when the, the age ends? What's it going to be like as the rapture of the church approaches, Daniel's 70th week approaches, the second coming of our Lord Jesus approaches? What's it going to be like? What are the things that are going to be happening in this world? And Jesus sits down with his disciples, and he gives them five things. Here's five things. Number one, he says, there will be religious deception. There will be false religions. There will be false things masquerading itself as the church. Many will say, Jesus is over here, or here's an instead of Jesus. He tells his disciples, do not be deceived. That's for us. Do not be deceived. Do we see religious deception all over our our planet today? Yes, we do. But then he goes on and he gives four more. He says, there will be wars and rumors of wars. We've seen that too. There will be famines droughts, food shortages, difficulties, just finding water, things of that nature. We've seen that type of stuff. And then he says, there will be pestilences, diseases, viruses, epidemic illnesses, pandemic illnesses. And then there will be earthquakes. But I just want to remind you, Jesus told us that. This is not a coincidence. Five signs he gives to his disciples to say, when you see these things, they should get your attention. Church, they should get our attention. If nothing more, they should get us looking at what Jesus says when he says these are the beginning of sorrows. These are not the end, but this is the beginning of sorrows. In other translations, it says these are the beginning of birth pangs. Like Braxton Hicks contractions that come on a late-term pregnant mother who's about to give birth, you're starting to feel there's something coming. And that's what this is showing us. It's been several decades since there's been a pandemic of this nature. It's been, it's been about 100 years since we've seen something shut down globally like this. And so we don't want to be surprised. We want to look to the Word of God and say, God, what are you telling us? And I believe he's telling us, be ready. Get in the right posture. Like we've all done when we're taking a road trip somewhere, and we pull up our phone to look at that map app, and we see that our exit is nearing. What do we do? We, we move over and we get in the right lane. We posture ourselves, but we keep driving. You can't pull off the side of the road. You don't stop at the sign. 
but you ready yourself, you posture yourself, and then you are looking for your exit that is coming. And Jesus is telling us all this so we'd be found faithful, so we'd be ready, so we would be doing what he's called us to do, being wise, being watchful, being in this generation, knowing that we have been born for such a time as this. It's not an accident that these things are happening. It's an opportunity, Christians. It's an opportunity. We have a great opportunity to be able to share the reason for the hope that we have in all seriousness as God starts opening doors that in some people's hearts haven't been opened for a long time. So I want you to walk through some of those things. A verse that I've loved and has, has given me great strength during this time is 2 Timothy 1.7. And it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And I love that. If I'm being motivated by fear, Christians, I'm not being led by the Spirit of God. Because He's not given us a spirit of fear, but power and love and a sound mind. And we've been being equipped for this. This is a time that God knew was going to come. So I want you to know that as the world is storing up toilet paper for reasons that we all scratch our heads, as the world is is hoarding resources and trying to pool all those things to survive, listen, be wise, be prudent. But I want you to know, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't hoard those things. If there's an opportunity for you to love someone else, love them in Jesus' name. And don't hoard up your faith. Don't hoard up the hope that you have. Don't hoard up your love. Share those things. Those are things that need to be spent now more than ever by those who are disciples of Jesus Christ, especially upon those who didn't know Jesus told them beforehand this was going to happen, especially those who don't know Jesus at all. So be the church in this time. That's my charge to you. It should be getting our attention and not conjuring up fear in us, but awakening faith. So walk through those open doors. So keep all of that in mind. Take heart. Jesus understood this, knew this, prepared us beforehand, and he is our Lord, our chief shepherd, the overseer of our souls, and he's leading us now. Continue to follow him in what he's walking you through. Now, what does all this have to do with Exodus? Well, strangely, uniquely, but not coincidentally, it is not hard at all to segue into the text that we've been studying. This is a a very similar situation that's happening in the book of Exodus as God is using similar things to try and get the attention of the Egyptians and all those Hebrew people, showing signs and wonders. Now, I've referred to them a few different times as plagues, and we're going to see they will be referred to as plagues. But I want you to think of them more as this plague, it literally means to strike a blow. What God is really doing is striking a blow upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, upon the false gods and idols here in the land. And he's striking a blow to show himself as more powerful, greater than anything that they're worshiping there as he reveals himself. So kind of keep that in mind. Exodus 3.20 is a verse I just want you to see because it just shows us that God's plan was that very thing back in the burning bush conversation. So Exodus 3.20 says... So I will stretch out my hand, the Lord says, and strike, strike a blow, strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst, and after that he, Pharaoh, will let you go. So that's where we're beginning. We're going to see the first two of the ten plagues as God starts to demonstrate his awe in Egypt. So pick it up where we left off last week. Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. It says, So the Lord said to Moses... Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. 
Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. So thus says the Lord, By this you shall know I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with a rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink of the water of the river. So I want you to picture this scene. After Moses and Aaron have gone before Pharaoh on two occasions already, they've already approached him once, and that led to them taking away the straw to make brick and making things worse before, before the people still under the heavy oppression. And then they go back again. And remember, they have that showdown, throwdown, where they, they throw the rods down, and they all turn into serpents. But the rod of God, the rod that Aaron throws down, that serpent is able to swallow them all up, show's over, party's over, everybody go home. That's, <coughs> that's what happened. God's wins. God's greater. So this is the third time. And Pharaoh, after witnessing the first displays of God's power, he still refused to yield to it. He's hardened his heart, just like God said he would. And so now this is the third encounter. God says, Moses, you and Aaron go to Pharaoh by the river's bank, by the Nile River's bank. Now I want to stop here just for a minute. I want you to, this is important to me. I want you to know, I want you to see here that God knows exactly where Pharaoh is going to be. I want you to check that out. God knows exactly where Pharaoh is going to be. God knows exactly the time Pharaoh is going to be there. God knows exactly what Pharaoh is going to do. Remember, it was Pharaoh who said of the Lord, I don't know him. What's his name? Who is he, right? Why should I obey him? And that's the posture of a lot of people in our world's heart. Who is the Lord? Why should I obey him? But just because they don't know who he is, don't think that the opposite is true. God knows who they are. God knows the patterns of their life. God knows where they are, when they're going to be there. Nothing is hidden before his sight. So he tells Moses that we could blow past it so quickly, but it's powerful. I know where Pharaoh's going to be. Go out to meet him. So they're going to do that. Now, we're not told exactly what is going on, why Pharaoh goes to this river, but I want you to see there are some religious overtones here. Right, he goes to the Nile River first thing every morning. In this narrative, we're going to see him found here again, probably two more occasions, definitely one more time. But he's going there first thing in the morning. There's some religious overtones as if he goes there to worship. You can make a strong case that the Nile River is their most important god, if you will. That's the most important thing that they worshipped in Egypt. So he's going there first, first thing every morning, giving his first fruits to what he values as most important, most worthy of awe in his life. So the Nile River, and that fits because why is the first plague striking the Nile River with blood? Because it's sending that most important message. The Lord God of Israel is greater than the greatest of gods you worship. And that's what the Lord says. We can see it again. Verse 17, he says this, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. By this, it's his first time saying, I'm going to reveal to you in power who I am, and I'm greater than what you worship the most. I'm greater than the Nile River. Now, just knowing this about the Egyptians, knowing this about Pharaoh, the Nile River to them was seen as the very giver of life. It was the Nile River, the floodwaters of the Nile River, that brought topsoil to the land of Egypt. Egypt. 
It was the Nile River that was credited as, as bringing great yields, bringing great crops, bringing their food supply, forming the irrigation system to be able to produce such great yields and crops. In fact, they viewed Egypt itself, they viewed the land as a gift from the Nile. You get they think the Nile River is their God and it has gifted us all of these things. It's the giver of life and it just totally fits what God is going to do to break that down and show them that that is not the case. So keep all that in mind. That's what God is doing, bringing judgment upon the Egyptians in his grace, showing them that what you are worshiping is not worthy to be worshiped. And I just, just take him into think about how interesting that is. Think about just the very situation we find ourselves in right now. Think about something. Are we worshiping something? Can we find ourselves bending our lives to something that it takes a virus to stop? And all of a sudden, we can't worship that thing because it's just gone. It's just stopped. It can be a church building in some capacities, can it? It can be sports. It can be restaurants. It can be concerts. It can be all those other things. But if they can all be stopped... The one who stopped them or the one who has the power to prevent them from being stopped, he's the greater, isn't he? When we think about a world that all things can change, we're looking at our world and we're seeing everything seems to be changing right now. We're in a time that is unprecedented. For many of our lives, we've never seen a time like this. But I want you to notice that if everything in our world can change except one thing, shouldn't that one thing be what makes us most in awe? If the, only one, if the Lord God is himself saying, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am unchanging. No one can stop me. No one can prevent me. No one can withhold their hand from me. If he's really, and he is, then he's the greatest of all. He's the one that we are worthy of most awe towards. He's the Lord. And so we're seeing the same thing. It's very similar to what we're seeing in our culture, what God is going to do here in the Nile River, in, the, in, the, in all of these ten signs and wonders. But it just begins right here. So God sends Moses and Aaron back to Pharaoh. Notice that verse 16, they, they inst- they're instructed to give Pharaoh God's terms. Notice these terms. Let my people go so that they may serve me. I want you to keep track of that. Those terms will never change. Pharaoh's going to offer some counter offers during this time, and the Lord says, these are non-negotiable. This isn't a debate. I'm not throwing out mine and expecting to bend, and we're going to meet somewhere in the middle. This is a non-negotiable terms that the Lord is sending out. Let my people go so that they may serve me, period. That's it. And I love that because the Lord is not going to stop until all of his people are redeemed. All of them are taken out of bondage in Egypt. So note that as he says that. But up until this point, and still for a while longer, Pharaoh has not wanted to heed the words of the Lord. He does not want to agree to these terms. So the next message, verse 17, says, Thus says the Lord, in prophetic language, God is going to have them share something that will happen before it happens. And he says, I will strike the waters of the Nile. No, picture the scene. They're standing right by the Nile, right there. Pharaoh might be wearing his religious robes, if you will, honoring the God of the Nile. He says, I'm going to strike that. I'm going to turn it to blood. And the Lord says it so, so clearly. It will become blood before your eyes. What you think is a giver of life, I'm going to make it a river of death. The fish are going to die. The river will stink. It will smell horrible. My son likes to say it will be horrific, which he thinks is a combination between terrific and horrible, right? It's going to be horrific, terrifically horrible. It's going to smell awful. And that is exactly what's going to happen here. For all those in Egypt, they're going to loathe the very thought of drinking this water. It's going to, it kind of makes my stomach turn 
to think about what that river is going to be like. Now, we're not told specifically what Pharaoh says here, but we get the idea that he scoffs at this warning as well. Maybe thinking in his heart, who is the Lord? Why should I obey him? Maybe thinking, there's no way he's greater than the Nile. There's no way I should have a greater awe towards the God of the Hebrews over the God I worship called the Nile River. And if that is his heart, if that is his attitude, he's going to find out he could not be more wrong. And that is so true for all of us. If we worship anything instead of over other than the Lord God himself, if we think that there's something, anything greater than the Lord God of all creation, we're wrong. We're going to find ourselves in Pharaoh's camp just completely wrong in error of this situation. So keep all that in mind. That's what the Lord's going to do. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 19 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, And the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river, so there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. So God warned it was going to happen, told Pharaoh beforehand that it was going to happen, and check this out, church, it happened exactly like the Lord said it would. Remember that Matthew 24 verse that we opened up with, right? Jesus says not one stone is going to be left upon another, and then in 8070 it happens which just validates everything else that he says is going to happen, it's going to happen in his appointed time, just like we're seeing here. Not a word of the Lord has ever nor will ever fail. And he just warns, he gives a a prophetic warning beforehand in, in, in many occasions. And he does it right before Pharaoh, before the sight of his servants who are with him. And God does exactly what he says. This river turns to blood. A, an example he, Pharaoh would never would have imagined and will certainly never forget. But just picture that fish start floating up to the surface. Fish start washing up ashore on the banks of that river. And then there's a smell that I can't even fathom but kind of wants to make me dry heave a little bit because if you've ever, if you ever smelled blood and dried blood after a couple days, it just has this earthy smell that is, is not too earthy but it's more like deathly. It, it's not good. But that's what's happening here. He's seeing this and all the pools, all the buckets, all the pitchers, wherever there was water in Egypt, God is showing his awesome power by turning it into blood. As we were thinking about maybe our circumstances around us now or maybe some of those fuel shortages that we've read articles about, this shutting down the Nile River, this bloodstream for all that it was to Egypt, it's like times 10 of all of those things. To shut this down like the Lord has done, it is getting everybody's attention. It's putrid and disgusting. And later we're going to see there's going to be about seven days that it's going to take to clear this thing up. But all that to say, I think everybody is having their attention captured by the Lord because this was not a natural occurrence. This was an action of a supernatural, almighty God. Now some of you, maybe you've, maybe you've heard some of the attempts to try and naturalize this miracle. 
Uh, well, well, maybe what happened was is there were there was a torrential downpour in the southern portion of Egypt, and that flooded the Nile River, and the red topsoil flowed out into the River Delta, and that's what happened. They try to explain it that way. The only problem with it is that's not what happened. Others will say, well, maybe it was a warmer year, and that led to a bloom of reddish algae and other microorganisms, and that led to an oxygen deficiency, and that kind of changed the color of the river and then resulted in that smell. And that's all fine and dandy. The only problem with that one is it didn't happen. What happened is the God of all creation judged Egypt and at the same time revealed himself through a demonstration of his awesome power. And I want you to know that using the Bible alone, the, the account that we just read, we can refute all of those naturalistic attempts to try and rationalize away the supernatural. I just want you to consider three things here. If the Nile River was turned blood-like every time there was a, a downpour, if this was just a natural phenomenon, I want you to know nobody in Egypt would have been worried about this at all. Nobody would have been loath to drink the water. Pharaoh would have said, what's the big deal about this? This happens all the time, right? He wouldn't have called for his magicians and his sorcerers and wise men to try and replicate it because it would have been natural. So it's just illogical that it wasn't natural. It's super natural. Number two, if this was natural, how can you explain all the water in buckets and pitchers and pools, water that was collected beforehand and not in the flow of the river and the streams, yet it turns the blood as well, right? Miraculous, a supernatural work of the Lord. And thirdly, if this was just a natural occurrence, it would have not fulfilled God's purpose of revealing that he is the Lord. That's what he said I'm going to do. He says before him, by this you shall know I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the great I am. Right? That's what he does. So it just, it just wouldn't fit. If you try to bring this down, you're having a whole lot of other problems arise that you just can't work past. So it's a, it's a supernatural miracle. God is extending his hand, doing a sign and a wonder to reveal himself and have everybody say, God is awesome. That renders me in awe of the Lord. So church, I have no problem whatsoever believing exactly what God said in his word happens. It turns to blood. It turns to blood. And why do I believe that? Well, number one, because the Bible says it did, right? How do I know Jesus loves me? Because the Bible tells me so. The same exact thing we're seeing here. I've got a couple more reference verses for you to look at. Psalm 78, verse 44, it says, He, he God, turned their rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink. Psalm 105, 29. He turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. And then the last one in the book of Revelation, the revealing of who Jesus fully is in chapter 16, bold judgments are being poured out upon this earth. And this is what gets recorded, Revelation 16, 5 and 6. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you've judged these things. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you gave them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Think about how consistent that is. Here in Egypt, they spilled blood, they received blood in return. In Egypt, they've worshipped the Nile as a river of life, but as soon as they decided it was okay to throw the Hebrew male children into that river, they just made it a river of death from God's perspective. And you reap what you sow. You sow death, you're going to reap death. You spill blood, you're going to receive blood to drink. So it's a judgment of the Lord. Here is what God is doing to show himself powerful, bring this judgment, begin the deliverance 
deliverance of his people. So this first plague starts with turning the Nile River into blood to show all those in Egypt, don't worship the Nile River for another day. Don't waste your time worshiping this Nile River for one more day. There is one greater. Because if God can change something one time, then it can forever be changeable. And that's so true for us because, again, God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the great I am, the self-existing, the self-sustaining, the Lord of all creation, the one who is. So here we go. He's, he's repeating this. He's showing us this. His power is being demonstrated. So how does Pharaoh respond to this? Verse 22 says, Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. So here, the scene kind of switches back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh sees this awesome display. He knows it's a supernatural act, because he summons his wise men and magicians, and once again they're able to replicate counterfeit on a smaller degree, a smaller level, this same miracle. Now, where they were able to get the water to be able to turn it into blood, I don't know. That's a question, right? We see that they're digging wells. They're trying to sift some of the blood out of the water through the dirt and maybe get some fresh water to be able to drink. Maybe they take that and they say, look, Pharaoh, we can do that too. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But they're able to replicate, counterfeit this, <clears throat> this miracle on a smaller scale. But that is enough for Pharaoh to not be impressed. His heart grows hard. He walks away. His heart is not moved by any of this. He doesn't heed the word of the Lord and let the people go. <clears throat> so seven days pass. Verse, or chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, and on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frog shall come upon you, on your people, and on all your servants. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. So we need to catch this out. We're not told specifically, but this has the appearance that it's taking place back at that river. Seven days have passed. They're back at the river. These first two plagues, these first two signs and wonders, these first two judgments are actually over the Nile River. God is striking the Nile River. One with blood and two, he's bringing the frogs out of the Nile River. So he's showing his miraculous power over what they believe to be their greatest deity, their, their, their God, the Nile. So he's back at it again. And he, he goes back to Pharaoh, give him my turn send Moses and Aaron to tell him what same request let my people go that they may serve me and once again God is warning what will happen if Pharaoh refuses to heed the word of the Lord Egypt will be plagued with frogs he will strike a second blow 
But I just want you to consider this. Seven days earlier, that river and all the waters of Egypt were struck with blood. All marine life is dying. The river smelled horrible. It seems highly unlikely that there could be, would be, just some natural hatch of all these amphibians coming out of the water. Right? Highly unlikely. As far as plausible, natural explanations for this one, I just couldn't even find one. Not even one worth repeating to you here because I just couldn't find one plausible. How a river can go from being so lethal seven days earlier to now have such a hatch that has never been seen before nor since, right, is highly unlikely unless you just let the Bible speak for itself and you see what God is doing as the one who's revealing himself to be the true and living God, the greater than of all those in Egypt. But I want you to see this in verse 3, chapter 8, verse 3. It says, God speaking, so the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house. But this frogs abundantly, this is the same exact word God uses when he speaks over the waters in the fifth day of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, when it says, Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. That's what is happening here. When the living God, the creator God speaks, creation responds. Living creatures are created. And it's the same exact word here. It's the same thing being implied here. Creator God is working an act of creation, doing what only he can do to bring in abundance frogs that are more than you can fathom, frogs in a display and demonstration of his awesome power. Friends, it is illogical otherwise to even consider what is going on. But that's what God does. Frogs come up from the waters everywhere, and they go everywhere. And some of us are like, oh, frogs are really cute, right? When you see one, you know, or maybe like three. Three at a max for me. Maybe you can have more. But when they are everywhere, all over your walls, in your oven, in your bowls, in your coffee cup, in your food, you got frog pie. They're everywhere, and they're on you. They're jumping all over your face. They're jumping all over your bodies. They're a great nuisance when they're in this kind of capacity. But what's somewhat comical here is nobody would think frogs are dangerous. I know there are some poisonous frogs, but in, in many capacities, frogs, they're just a nuisance. They're, they're not like a bunch of grizzly bears or a bunch of ferocious wolves, right? They're frogs. But they're such a nuisance in this capacity because they're everywhere. But what makes this situation even more comical is it was unlawful to kill frogs in Egypt. This is another one of their deities. So think about having a, a complete overload of all these frogs and then knowing you can't kill them. Right? You're accidentally stepping on them because they're everywhere, but you can't kill them because they're viewed as a, another deity, an object of worship. They're viewed as sacred. And I just think that's unique when we think about what's God doing here? What is he trying to communicate? And I think it's this, that sometimes we view something as sacred until God gives us such an overabundance of it, and we see, well, actually, that's truly not something to be worshipped anyway. Sometimes God just says, well, you want to worship this, here's so much of it, you're going to see how silly it is to worship it. It seems like God is doing something in a capacity like that and turning these frogs into being just an annoyance. And we're going to see he's not done with what he's going to do here. But if you want to worship frogs, the Lord says, here you go. Here are some frogs for you. Frogs, frogs, frogs everywhere. Frogs with no end in sight. But verse 7 says, And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up more frogs on the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people. Right, that's so important for us, especially when we sit here redeemed in a positional righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have the Apostle Paul saying, There is now therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Because they cannot undo what Jesus has done. We have been made righteous by God's grace through faith in Jesus and His perfect work on the cross. So there is no condemnation. They cannot lessen. They cannot take away. They cannot devalue the perfect righteous blood of Jesus and His full sufficient sacrifice no matter how they want to. Right? They can't. That's what we're seeing here. We are we're able to rest assured knowing that God is our righteousness. Jesus is our salvation. We are safely secure in His hands as we abide in Him. Right? So know that. That's what's being exposed here. They cannot stop an unstoppable God. So they want to add more frogs? God says, yes, add more frogs. That'll be fine. And so he permits them to do that. But now that Pharaoh's not able to have his wise men undo it, the power that they have is starting to be exposed. What he really can't do is undo what God is doing here. So what does he do? What is the last thing Pharaoh has left? Verse 8 says that Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron. And he said, entreat the Lord. He's saying, pray for me. Make supplication for me. He's crying out and he's saying, the only person who can take away the judgment that is falling upon Egypt is the Lord God himself. Think about that. We'll come back to that as we, as we end. The only one who can take away the penalty for my rebellion is the Lord God himself. And I want you to pray to him for me. Friends, that is powerful. Here in the second plague, the second sign of wonder, we have evidence here that Pharaoh is turning to the Lord, starting to recognize that God is greater than the gods and idols of Egypt. He's greater than the Nile. Now he's going to make a false promise here. He's not there yet. He's praying that God will, will let the people... You, you pray for me, I'll let the people go. He's not going to honor that promise, but he's certainly starting to see God has more power than all that I have at my disposal. But look at what, look what Moses does. Moses says, I'll give you the honor, Pharaoh, verse 9, I'll give you the honor of saying, when you want me to pray for you. I think that's unique, right? If someone's, if someone's really in a place where they're in a crisis, and you want to say, I'll give you the honor of telling, of telling me when you want me to pray for you. It's kind of testing, how bad do you really want deliverance from this? And how bad does Pharaoh want deliverance? What is he? he doesn't say right now. That baffles me. Right? Frogs are all over. One just jumped into my mouth. Right now, pray for me. What does he say? He says, oh, tomorrow. Let's put it off tomorrow. And we know that's, that's what so many people do. Well, I'll take care of it tomorrow. I want you to pray for me tomorrow. I'll try and get right with the Lord tomorrow. And I'm telling you, today is the day of salvation. Don't put off for tomorrow because nobody's promised tomorrow. But that's what he says. Tomorrow. Pray for me tomorrow. Now Moses is going to do that. But look at what Moses says. Moses is so coming on board for what God is doing here. Verse 10, Moses says, I will pray for you tomorrow, but you will know there is no one like the Lord our God. I love that Moses says that. I love that Moses' heart is starting to beat who he is and what God has called him to do and who the Lord is. No one is like our God, the, Moses says here in his declaration to, to Pharaoh. This guy's getting more bold by the minute. And, and certainly shouldn't we, right? We see the awe of God on display here. But tomorrow Moses, he goes and he's going to pray. You can look down here in, in verse 13. It says, so the Lord did according to the word of Moses. We can all say, what? 
He answers prayer. That's a sermon. That one half verse is a sermon all by itself, but we'll have to save that for another time. But he, he hears Moses' prayer. He obeys. Maybe obeys is the wrong word. He responds because he's praying in accordance to his will, and he does what Moses has prayed for. The frogs die. They're piled up in heaps, and once again, Egypt stinks. Right? The second time, God has made it very clear what you were doing in Egypt, it stinks. Right? How powerful is that? God just coming in there and saying, I'm going to show you the work of your hands. I'm going to show you the fruit as known by what you've been doing. Wisdom is known by her children. In Egypt, what you've been doing to my children, Lord said, it stinks. Twice he said, it stinks. He's brought the fragrance of death into the land of Egypt to very, very much communicate how he feels about what is going on there. But the, the last thing we see here in verse 15, it says, When Pharaoh saw there was relief... He hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. After this great demonstration of God's power, all these things that leave us in awe, Pharaoh's going to harden his heart yet again. He cries out to the Lord in a crisis, but as soon as there's relief, as soon as things get a little easier, he goes back to his ways, prideful, maybe self-sufficient, maybe thinking that I am still holding on to this last shred of power that I still have, and he doesn't heed the words of the Lord, he doesn't repent, he doesn't turn and say, let the people go, this God is greater than me, and if I continue to fight against them, it's going to end in disaster. Right? He continues to dig his heels in, and we'll pick this up as we continue in the coming weeks. But as we start to wind this down this morning, I want us to look at a few things that God has done here. I think for some of us, we have some pharaohs in our lives. We have some people that, that we're sharing with. We have some people that we're praying for, right? We all should, and I, and I believe we all do. But it feels like it's just fallen on deaf ears. It feels like over and over they're seeing awesome things, and yet they're, hardened, they're hardening their hearts. Maybe they're even coming to us in a crisis, like right now they're saying, what's going on? Pray for me, pray for me. And we are. But as soon as there's relief, they turn back and, and they go back to their ways. I want you to see something, and I want you to be convinced that what you're doing is not all for naught. I want you to see that what God has sent Moses and Aaron to do, what God has done to exalt himself, to bring glory and awareness to himself, it is not gone undone. And I want you to apply it to your situation with those people that you're ministering to. There are four things that we can see. Pharaoh has learned about the Lord God after seeing his awe demonstrated. So four things. In chapter 8, verse 7, we see our first one. It says, this is Pharaoh's own lips. It says, The magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on their, on their land. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron said, Entreat. What he's saying here is they don't have the power to undo what God has done. Pharaoh has learned that God has a power greater than everything that is at his disposal. So the first thing that he's learning about God here that we can see and testify is he sees God is more powerful than he is. More powerful than the Nile, more powerful than his wise men and sorcerers. They can't undo what God has done. And I think that's important, right? He has power, and he's going to say only he can take away the judgment that has been placed upon Egypt. That is why he's going to show us the next thing he's learned here. He's learned the name of the Lord. He says, entreat the Lord. That is capital L-O-R-D. That is Yahweh. That is the great I Am. And I want you to remember, we referenced it earlier, that when Pharaoh first, meet, first meets Moses and Aaron, what does he say? Who is the Lord? Who is he? Why should I obey him? He's now learned that this God is powerful, more powerful than me. He's now learned his name, church. He knows his name. And pray to the Lord, 
Pray to Yahweh. Pray to the Lord God Himself. He knows His name. Number three, the third thing we see from this same verse, verse 8, is He knows how to access and tap into God's power. How do we know that? Because He asks Moses and Aaron to pray for Him. Entreat, plead, make supplication, pray for me. And then He gives Moses the time. Moses prays. God responds in power. But just, just know that He's learned that prayer is powerful. He's learned that prayer is how we access the power of God as we pray in His name. Right? Pharaoh knows this. Right? We can see he knows this. And then fourthly, Pharaoh has learned what it is that God really desires. What is really required of his people. What is really necessary. And it's at the end of verse 8. He says, I will let the people go so that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Pharaoh understands that there needs to be a sacrifice made by his people in a right response of worship because of who he is. So just think of Pharaoh knows. He knows that the Lord, he knows his name. He knows that God is powerful. He knows how to tap into that power is through prayer. And he knows what is required is a sacrifice. Pharaoh knows all of those things. Now the sad thing about this is Pharaoh knows all of those things. He knows all of these things about the Lord, but he doesn't know the Lord. And when he has the opportunity to say, I want you to pray for me, what does he say? He says, I want you to take away the frogs. What I really want is I want you to make my circumstances better again. And what I really want for all of us, as we're living our lives, as we're living on mission, as we're trying to be faithful with all of these people around us who are really wanting to know, can you just take away the virus? Can you just take away the, the circumstance so my life can go back the way it is? I pray that we show them that taking away the frogs, that's not really what you need, Pharaoh. What you really need is someone to take away your sins. What you really need is someone to take away the judgment that your sins are deserving, not the frogs. What we really want, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray that God bring healing to the land and take away the virus, but what we really, really want is that people would have their sins taken away. That they would come to know Jesus, not just know about Him, but know Him personally as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That they would know His power, they would know His name, they wouldn't ask someone to pray, they would pray themselves. They would call on the name of the Lord and they would be saved and they would understand that that sacrifice that is required from God for His people is Jesus. Living the perfect life, dying the perfect death, rising from the grave, seated at the right hand of the Father, the highest name above all names, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, our Jesus. That's what we want. And I would love it, n nothing more, to be able to see that Pharaoh says that, take away my sin, pray that God would forgive me. Our God is gracious and merciful, abounding in love, taking no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants to see people get saved. He sent Jesus in the greatest demonstration of love so that people would be saved. People could call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. When we think about awe demonstrated, there's no greater awe, there's no greater action that causes reverential respect in my heart, fear, love, appreciation, than thinking about God in the flesh hanging naked on a cross for my sins. Paying that penalty that was due me. Paying the penalty that my sins accrued. That's the hope that we have in Christ. And that's what we really want to see people get. So as you're living out your life, just like Moses and Aaron are living out their lives before Pharaoh, they're catching things, Christians. They're catching. You have a peace when, when nobody else seems to have a peace. You have hope when nobody else has hope. You have answers when it doesn't seem like anybody else has answers. 
But don't let people rest in the solution is just that their circumstances on the outside in a temporary capacity get better. Right? Use that to get to the heart of the matter. The problem of the heart that is distant from God needs to be born again. A heart of stone taken out. A heart of flesh placed in because we've been born again. So catch that. Apply that. Walk in that. I love I love the last thing I'll share. I love when Jesus is talking about this and, and he has the man that they let, he's been crippled from birth and they let him through the roof of that house and, and Jesus is going to heal them. Remember the Pharisees are all tripping about that. And he says, which is harder to do? Say, pick up your bed and walk or say your sins are forgiven. Right? And we see here, Jesus can, he can do these things in an instant. To heal someone in an instant. To take away a virus in an instant. But to take away our sins, it took him living the life we deserved. It took him dying a death on a cross. And it took him defeating sin, death, the devil, and the grave when he rose from the dead. So keep that on your lips. And if there's anyone watching here and you're tuning in, you're thinking, I, I need that. This thing has got me freaked out and I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what my eternal situation is. I want you to know Jesus is still reaching his right straight hand out to you today to say, saying, I want to take away your sins. Call upon my name. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and he rose from the grave and you will be saved. Do that in the quietness of your home right now and send me an email or talk to some Christian friends that you know and let's get plugged in. But church, we love you, and we know God is in control through this situation. Be in awe of what He's able to do. He has literally brought a shutdown in so many capacities to this globe. But yet, He's still on His throne. He's not caught unaware. He's not surprised at what is going on. He is well pleased as we turn to Him and say, God, we trust you. 